So I'm just going to touch down in a few places uh, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, they're exact same story. They're just from different views, written in different genres, if you like. Uh, one's written like a song or a poem from God's point of view from a more transcendent point of view and the other ones are more of a historic narrative chapter two if you like it's more of a street level view of of what's going on in creation but they both describe real historic events and they both uh describe real historic people and real historic creations and they both describe a very real god we're in this series now, and we're, tra- we're going to be traveling through Genesis, looking at the question uh, that we've inserted into this series in Genesis of uh, how does what we find in Genesis prepare us uh, for Jesus, based on Jesus' own assessment that all of Scripture is, is one complete story that, that points to him. So that should be fun. That's not all we're doing. We're actually going to get into the text, and, and at the same time, we're going to see what Genesis is saying about who God is, uh, who we are, why we are, uh, and the relationship that's involved there. And as Genesis, as the name Genesis suggests, uh, it's, it's a book of origins, a book of the origin of realities, uh, of reasons, of, in, of intentions and relationships and God and humanity. And it also is a, is a book that provides a framework for the future and what's to come. As a piece of historic literature, uh, no, no other bit of literature out of ancient Near East uh, is as, is as, or is, what would the phrase, is remotely comparable uh, in scope, in, in continuity, in, in consistency of purpose and significance for humanity than Genesis. There are other um, ancient stories of creation. Uh, the Babylonian creation account, the uh, Enuma Elish, you know, from about 1200 BC. And then there's an Akkadian uh, creation epic of Arta. I'm not Akkadian, so I don't know how to pronounce it. Dude. But which links, it's got, a, it's got a creation story and then a story of a great um, deluge. Um, they give these kind of mythological situation. They're always kind of violent. There's always frustration in it. And, and uh, what are we doing here uh, for the creation of humanity? But none of them offer this continuous historic picture of hope-filled design, uh, of power and purpose uh, behind the God of creation that, that Genesis gives us. Genesis gives us this, this picture from, from creation to corruption, uh, promise, provision, and the providence of God. Uh, in, in this story, a story of a God who, who isn't frustrated, who isn't just malevolent, but a, a story of a God who actually in creation is, is serving humanity and cares for humanity and guides his creation with his goodness. Genesis is a story that tells us how things should be and why they are not and the unfolding plan or the beginning of the unfolding plan of, of their recovery to say nothing of the fact uh, that it is literature that was inspired by God himself, given to authors like Moses and others. So that's our book. That's Genesis. So, so let's pray and we'll get into it. And you're going, let's pray. I thought, I thought you were halfway through the sermon, man. No, just a little introduction. Loving Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who communicates, that, that you give us this picture of uh, original intent 
for us to look at, for us to marvel, for us to kind of uh, understand life through. So this morning and on the next few weeks as we get into this series, we pray that you would uh, speak to us and warm our hearts with affection for the God who is this God of creation. Amen. Well, uh, Bruce Waltke, in his exegetical notes, in his commentary uh, on the prologue of Genesis, which is Genesis chapter 1 to 2, 3, Uh, He begins it by saying the daring claim of verse 1, which encompasses the entire narrative, invites the reader into the story. Its claim and its invitation is that in the beginning God completed perfectly his entire cosmos. This phrase beginning here, this beginning refers to the fact that God alone exists And this is the account of the entire created event of the six days of creation, not merely a part of the first day. Uh, This is the, the continuous story, the unbroken story from the beginning. It's stated as a historic fact, not a once upon a time or, or here's an analogy. No, creation is an account, is a highly sophisticated presentation designed to emphasize, uh, the sublimity, the, the, the sublimity of power, of, of presence, of wisdom and majesty of the creator God. To lay down and give categories for the foundation of a worldview of a covenant community that willingly obeys and gloriously displays and happily enjoys the rule and the reign of this creator king. And that when and that when everything and everybody submits and lives in this experienced, joyful relationship to the king is very good. And while this is a complete story, it is also a story that leaves out details deemed unnecessary. Like the fact that we are told God created the heavens and the earth, which is like a merryism, it's a, it's a, it's a phrase uh, that represents the the, uh, the totality of the, of the cosmos, the organized universe in which humanity lives, a phrase that captures everything that is not God, the seen and the unseen. And, they, and in this phrase, uh, telling us that God created the heavens and the earth, this, this phrase is saying the universe is open to God, that God is the one who can come in and transform it transform it, as we will see, into a kingdom of his glory. But while we are told that little bit of information, there is no word given, no marker for the creating of the planet or the darkness or the watery chaos on which God's creative power is spoken over and into to transform uh, into the ordered universe where everything and everyone submits and lives in this experienced, uh, joyful relationship to its king, and it's very, very good. So when reading Genesis' account of creation and the following stories, we must be careful that we don't go looking for answers that the story never intended to provide. Answers like, well, how long did it take? How old is the earth? What happened to those crazy dinosaurs? The author is not interested in this because that is just not the point of Genesis. While Genesis paints a picture of creation that is organized and operates on scientific rules and principles, it is not a story seeking to answer questions of the age of the earth, the size of the flood, 
It is inviting you to comprehend and marvel at the God of this unified story and his plans and his purposes for creation. So, whether you hold a position of a young earth, an earth that's say six to 15,000 years old, with a literal six 24 hour days in which God's creative processes made the earth appear aged. And there's nothing about God that makes this impossible. And people who take the Bible seriously and God's power seriously can land here. Or whether you hold a position of a day aged, uh, position that the six days of creation are actually ages, possibly thousands of years through which God created and ordered the universe. And again, people who take the Bible seriously can land here. Or maybe you hold a position that's called the framework view, that Genesis is written as a as a polemic against uh, the pervading other worldviews of the time. And it's framed in a way so that it holds up the character and the glory of God, of the Hebrew God, against the other gods and against other creation accounts and other creation stories. Or maybe you hold the gap theory, that there is this unexplained period of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 in, in which the destruction of an original creation, including the introduction of evil and the unfolding geological ages, can be located in that little space there. And then God recreated the cosmos. It's a little more difficult to sustain, but it takes the Bible seriously with respect to, with respect to creation and allows you to be consistent with the structure that's written there. I think it's got a few serious issues, but that's just me. These are the possible positions of Genesis 1 and 2. And within the people of God, it's okay that these positions exist. They shouldn't be reasons to go to war. They shouldn't be reasons that we feel insecure at all. But none of them are specifically why we have this account. Your position should be what the author uh, intended, and that is that we long, that we long to be in this picture of creation, long to know this God behind this creation. And the most compelling message of Genesis is not how old the earth is or how many days did God literally take to create it. The most confronting, compelling and even comforting message of Genesis 1 and 2 is that you are not an autonomous creature. You are not a meaningless creature or, or an essence trapped in a material world. You live and breathe and experience the world because God made it and he made you in it. And your life should be lived in accordance with that reality. You don't need to know the days of creation. You need to know the God of creation. Which makes Genesis a profoundly challenging but confronting counter-narrative to the, to, the, to the one that our modern storytellers have crafted. That it's all up to you to create meaning. It's all up to you to create happiness and, and experience because that is all there is. Just what you can conjure up. You are the master of your own story. You are the master of your destiny. You determine the limits and the boundaries of what is good and what is evil. Genesis 1 and 2 says, no, you are not. 
God is. And with every impulse towards that idea that you are, the less and less human you become. And the further out of relationship with humanity, the further out of relationship with, with harmony with humanity and God and the kingdom for which you have been created. To be under God's rule with God as the good king in the Bible is always to enjoy his blessing, to enjoy him. It's the best way to live. God's original creation shows us a model of a kingdom as it was meant to be. God is creator of all, Lord of all. He is the rightful king over everything he has made. It's a material and relational reality. And when everything keeps its allotted places and, and doesn't transgress its limits, there is order, not chaos. There is peace, not anxiety. There, there is creativity, good creativity, not, not corruption. Just willful obedience, glorious reflection and enjoyed relationship and things are very good it's captured the psalmist captures this in in psalm 95 uh, verses 3 to 7 for the lord is the great god the great king above all gods and in his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him the sea is his for he made it and the and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in, in what? In begrudging submission? No, come let us bow down in, in worship. Let us kneel before God, the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his... What? We are the people of his neediness, his frustration... No, we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. What it means is that you were created to be under the ruling, loving care and reign of this God in this kingdom. And at the end of the creation account, in, in, in the Garden of Eden, we see the world as God designed it to be. God's people, Adam and Eve live in God's place, in his presence, the garden, in God's presence, under his rule, as they submit to his word. It's a picture of, this picture of creation is really, really good, as Genesis 1.31 proclaims, and proclaims it from the heart of God, that it is very good. And Genesis 2 proclaims it from the, from the heart of humanity, if you like. That, that this picture is a picture without shame, which means that there is the existence of, of total relational peace and good rhythm. It's a very good picture. And when we read through the rhythm of creation in Genesis 1, which is a history that's composed like a song or a poem, we get these repeated spoken lyrics, words, spoken commands and assessments from God about his works. You would have, you would have heard the rhythm as Josh and Prudence read. Things like, and God said, and God made, and God called or named, and it was good. And finally, in what you might call the bridge, I suppose, we hear the, the, the lyric, and it was very good. And here is one way that Genesis prepares us for Jesus by introducing us into to the eternal pre-incarnate pre word 
as the creative power in creation into this negative kind of unformed state enters the word of God. And the word and the spirit set about building God's cosmic temple where his rule and his presence will dwell with his creation and with his people. The idea of creation by the word of God, kind of as we read this, also preserves that there is a distinction between creator and the created. Creation is not merely an an, an, um, emission, an animation of God, but rather it is a product of the will of the good king. And John, when when he began his gospel, he picks up on Genesis, he also picks up on Exodus, And he says this by telling the word became flesh and he dwelt amongst us. And that word there is he tabernacled. He lived and maybe, and this is not, but this is me thinking, and he kind of tabernacled, he edened. He had a particular presence about him that, that, that was good amongst us. Only a creative God can enter into creation to transform what has been turned into chaos through sin. Sin is always decreational. The word is creational and he has come into the world to recreate a people and a kingdom who once again can live together. Only it will take his own, as we read the story, it's going to take his own decreation, his own death to bring the new life of the kingdom along with the defeat and the deletion of sin. This song of Genesis tells the historic story of God and the Word and the Spirit as the sole effortless power behind creation. God who plans, who creates, who animates and relates to his creation through his Word and the Spirit. And we notice that in this song we keep hearing the limit that God saw that it was good. What is being sung about here? What is being described? Is it just that creation has kind of passed a quality control test? Yes, that's fit for purpose. No defects in that part of creation. No, no sin. And God gets out his little red stamp and stamps good or passed on it. And when he gets to humanity, it's very good. He did a better job with people than he did with, say, guinea fowls or something or other. No, this, this word good is not, is not just qualitative. It's relational. It's experiential. It's kind of reactional, if I can put it that way. It's kind of like when you bite into a nice, big, juicy steak and you go, hmm, good, real Homer Simpson kind of a moment. Or perhaps you sip on an aged wine or a freshly brewed coffee and you go, hmm, good. Or the intimacy of a husband and a wife, and it's, hmm, that's good. You don't just look, you experience and enjoy. And that is God with creation. He delights in it. He enjoys it. He is going, hmm, good. And, and the very good of humanity is because humanity has less limitations 
than the kinds and the forms of the rest of creation and more of God's self-determining qualities and more of God's authority, if you like. There's more to enjoy with humanity. This is someone like God, with whom God uh, can relationally share himself and his rule and his reign, someone to, to bear out his image, his character, display his glory throughout. And it's... Mm. It's good. And our experience of that was, hmm, this is good. And then in Genesis 2, which is more of a narrative history, we are told that creation is a place of derived creativity, prescribed authority and law, relational cooperation, in which there is no shame, just relational peace under the rule and the reign of a good king of creation. There is a mandate for humanity to continue this, this picture of creativity, to go and fill the earth and then to reproduce in the rest of creation what God has done in the garden. Expand the kingdom. And as God looks at it, he is, mm, this is good. So just as God delights in what he has created, we too are to delight in him and his creation. That is the picture of Genesis 1 and 2. It's a song, it's historical narrative proclaiming that the beauty and the order and the delight of creation are proclaiming a truth, a reality, that when humanity lives under the rule and the reign of the good king with an experience of, hmm, this is good, there are very good relationships without shame. There is peace and there is cultivated uh, good creativity and order. And you are meant to read this account. Like as you heard it read to you, the whole two chapters read to you this morning, you were supposed to long for that picture. You are not meant to read it and go, oh, he's talking about a six literal days, uh, ages. You are meant to read this and well up with worship for God. His immeasurable power and might, his intimacy and wisdom. You should want to sing this song. You want to sing this song with him? We sing, come, be, come and behold him. That's the response. Come, sing, worship. This is what Genesis 1 and 2 are trying to achieve. When everything and everyone submits and lives in an experienced, joyful relationship to the king, it is very good. And you may have noticed when Josh and Prudence read or perhaps when you've read, that day seven has no description of there was evening and there was morning. And that is because we now have a, pic a perfect picture of the kingdom of God, where there is convergent space between God and creation. God dwells with his creation, his presence, and his rule uh, fills their experience of, of, of this good world. It fills their experience of work and relationships and, and all of this. And there is peace and harmony in this picture. So there's no, it, it, this, is, this is supposed to be moving forward. This is how it is to be. Here's what we are being shown, that humanity is meant to share creation with God, to rest and to rule under his rest and rule, moving forward. 
This is the fundamental creative imperative woven into the human soul. This is the deep abiding satisfaction, joy and delight. Being in the presence and the power of God in, in, his, in his space with God living in his kingdom. This is also the function for the prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is one law in the whole of creation that is uh, prohibitive, that puts a limit on the authority of humanity in creation. One, everything else is green lights. But all the rest is go exercise your authority, uh, your creativity. Go and delight in each other. Go and delight in God and in all his creation. Green lights across the table. The reason for this prohibition of the tree of good, of the knowledge of good and evil, is that humanity would know that obedience leads to joy. You, you get that? It's there so that as you, as you continue to obey to this, be in obedience to this prohibition, everything's still very good. But why do we want this to change? That trusting the word of God is where life and flourishing is found. But God is not after your begrudging submission. His plan is not that you would know him through, through fear and duty, but rather through peace and agreement and delight the one law Genesis 2.15 it sets out a design parameter don't rebel against what you most desperately need the presence of God the peace of God the order of God the power of God the wisdom and the rule of God you need these things to know life to reject these things is to declare separation from God to invite fear and disorder and dysfunctional loves and chaos, what the Bible calls sin, and to provoke the wrath of God, which God describes as dying. Do this and you will die. And we did, but that's, that's next week. That's next week's sermon. But because we were created for a kingdom... That when everything and everyone submits and lives in an experienced, joyful relationship to the king, it's very good. There is something in us that longs for that day seven of creation. This is the worldview that Genesis gives us, that's woven into us, of a, of a covenant community of people created for the kingdom, that when everything and everyone submits and lives in an in an experienced, joyful relation to the king, it's, it's very good. And this is how Genesis prepares us for Jesus. But that's the main point of the first two chapters, I think. But it also prepares us for Jesus by telling us and giving us a worldview that we were made to be in relationship with a good king. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us this, this worldview uh, constantly pushes back and questions, if you like, how we now experience life. And then when, when, when Jesus, as John told us, enters into human history, that this is, the, this is God, the word, coming 
uh, to reclaim his kingdom, coming to reclaim and redeem his creation. It sets us up for that. And Mark's gospel tells us right out of the gate that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited king, whose coronation is not some grand and regal figure, but he's actually this, this crying baby. This is a very approachable, relationable king. Nevertheless, Mark says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is always the news of a conquering king who's come to bring his kingdom. And we have been in the gospel of Luke for like three years. So we should be familiar with what Jesus looks like. We should be familiar with the kind of king he brings and the kind of, kind of environment that his rule and reign brings. Luke lets us know that Jesus understood his person and his purpose as being that of a dual citizen of living the life that we were, that we were supposed to live and, and also one who brings the agency of transformation. Luke 4, Jesus declares that the good news of the kingdom of God is his message and it's also his mission. He will teach about this kingdom and he will transform into this kingdom. He will reveal who he is and he will redeem his subjects. Luke lets us know that where the king is, there is the kingdom. Jesus is both a citizen and the ruler of God's kingdom. And all through Luke, we have seen how Jesus lived as Adam should have lived. But we have also seen that how in Jesus, the presence and the power and the wisdom of God with recreational authority to undo what sin has done in the world, to, to, to bring life and forgive sin, it's why Jesus says in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Luke lets us know that Jesus is creation's king. Bringing to bear recreation on his people as he heals and restores, but also he's the king over the decreational forces behind what's jacking up this world. His kingship, his authority destroys all that Satan has set up in this world. Declaring in Luke 11, if by the finger of God, it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the declaration. Genesis prepares us for the kind of king, uh, this kind of king, this kind of ruler, who uses all of his authority, all of his power, all of his presence and wisdom to make things very good again. Jesus is not just some once upon a time story that the you know, second century church made up or that we use to install morality into our children. Jesus is creation's king and he has entered into his creation to transform it and conform it back into its original design. And Jesus' words and deeds and claims only make sense, only bring life if we see Genesis 1 and 2 behind them. The proclaiming that when everything 
and everyone submits and lives in an experienced joyful relation to this king, it's very good. That's when Jesus commands, that's when his claims become the beginning of a new day of rest in which we once again can sing, hmm, hmm, it's good. It's very good. Anyone can establish a kingdom of political and geographical and military scope and relationships. But only Jesus can bring the Genesis picture of a kingdom because only Jesus has the creative power and presence and wisdom to do so. Only Jesus can reestablish the the convergent space, the shared realities of heaven and earth and, and unite these two kingdoms back in peaceful relationships again. Only Jesus, through the the cooperation of the Spirit, creates new people who willingly obey, gloriously display, and happily enjoy the rule and the reign of the good King. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you. You are a good King. You have your whole heart towards us is that we would enjoy you and that we would enjoy your creation and that we would enjoy each other. And this was your original intent, this this kingdom, this community. Uh, And as we will see, this this story becomes undone, but then we will see how you begin to restore it. And it's one uh, big story, one unified story that leads us to Jesus as, as the redemption and the reclaiming Uh, of your kingdom in this created world and in our hearts. And our prayer is that we would see a God who is loving and desirable, that would draw us towards him, not have us hide in fear and shame, and that Jesus would be the picture of that for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.